A few years ago, uh, there was a survey taken of athletes and coaches and press, and the question was, who's the greatest coach of all time? And you can imagine the names that came up, uh, Red Arbach in basketball and Vince Lombardi and more modern people, Pat Summit, lady coach at Tennessee, Belichick, Tom Osborne made the top 50, Tom Landry. But the winner was John Wooden. Now, it didn't hurt that he won 10 national championships at UCLA, but when they paneled the group, what set him apart was his love, love for his players. And he felt that he was going to take young men and when they left UCLA, if they were going into the pros or into the general population, he wanted them equipped. He wanted to motivate them. He wanted to build within them and empower them to be the best that they could be. And he learned in coaching that he could criticize their play, but he couldn't criticize their character. And his philosophy became, I need to love the players and then the players need to love their teammates so that they learn to forgive, they learned integrity, they learned how to overcome obstacles, they became a team. And he got that message from Jesus, who said, love like I love. And so this morning, we're starting a four-week series on love. Many of us, uh, Remember in the mid-80s, Tina Turner came out with a song, What's Love All About? And I'm going to say it's everything. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for men that are examples like Coach Wooden. Help us to open our ears and our eyes and our heart this morning and penetrate I pray that as we leave this place this morning, we will never be the same. Amen. Some of you know my background a little bit. I grew up in a small town in eastern Nebraska. My folks were strong Christians. As a young man, an evangelist came to our church, and after a week, I got the message that there was sin in my life, and that sin separated me from God. If I wanted to be right, if I wanted to be able to go into the presence of the Holy God, I needed to be forgiven. And there wasn't enough good things I could do. And I learned that Christ died on the cross for my sins. And that I needed to accept that. And if I did and turned towards him, I was going to be able to spend eternity with him. And I understood that. Salvation by faith and grace. But I'll have to admit then, and even to some degree today, I developed what a pastor called vertical morality. And then I had kind of a checklist of things that I was supposed to do. And if I did those things and checked them off, then God, I felt, would be pleased with me. Maybe he'd hear my prayers a little better. Maybe I'd get 
some advantage somewhere along the line. I knew salvation wasn't that, but that's where I got going. And if you have that mindset, you begin to ask questions like, is that a sin? Uh, is that a, how close can I get to that line and not cross over? And if I would happen to tip my toe over here, is there a loophole? And so I began to develop a relationship with God based on obedience. You know, when you think about who's your best friend, who you have a good relationship with, obedience is not in the discussion. I don't have a best friend because he obeys me. And that was my relationship with God. And I think some of that started from Sunday school, learning about how God developed or how God related to the Israelites. It was conditional. That old covenant, if my people humble themselves and pray, then I will do this. And it became a conditional relationship with God and the nation of Israel. But that changed when Christ came on the scene. You know, when we celebrate communion, we say this is the new covenant. The new covenant is the relationship between Jesus and me and Jesus and you. And it's not based on obedience. It's based on love. And it becomes less of a legalistic and much more of loving my neighbor. I don't know if you know this, but this church, founded in the 30s, had a very legalistic doctrine. Some described it as the nine uglies. You couldn't smoke, you couldn't drink, you couldn't watch TV, you couldn't go to dances. There was a whole list of things. If you were a good Berean, you couldn't do those things. In the 1980s, the church leadership went in and changed those. But we've developed this legalistic, check-the-box mentality for many of us, myself included at times. And then Jesus came and said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the game changed. There's a new covenant now. And so as we go any further, we keep talking about love. The English language isn't nearly as flowery as Greek. So when we say love, the Greek has actually four different words for love, to be more specific. One is eros, which is a romantic love. It's not even mentioned in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, Song of Solomon. And then there's phileo, which is a brotherly love. It's a strong bond between men and women. Sturge is a kind of an uh, empathy love. And then there's agape. And that's the love we're talking about. Agape is unconditional. It's loving the unlovable. It's loving with no strings attached. Not a victim of your emotion. So when we talk about God is love, 
We're talking about agape. And that takes us to 1 Corinthians. Whenever you think of love in the scriptures, you go to 1 Corinthians. Every wedding you've ever been to reads 1 Corinthians 13. The Corinthians were having quite a run of problems in their church. And Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote to them. And they were in chapter 12 and going into 13, they were struggling with the spiritual gifts. Now we believe when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you and me and gifts us with certain extraordinary skill sets. The Bible says there's about 18 spiritual gifts and none of us have all of them. All of us have at least one. And the challenge is, is for this body of believers, each one of us needs to exercise our spiritual gifts so that we can function at our most efficient manner. And the Corinthians were saying, well, there's these gifts up here, these three. These three are more important than all the other gifts. If you've got the gift of prophecy or knowledge or tongues, you're on the A-team. And if you don't have those gifts, you're kind of like a B-team Christian. And it was creating this division. And 13 verse 1 says, If you speak the tongues of men and angels. Now, let me pause just for a moment. Google says there's over 7,000 dialects or languages in the world. So if you could speak 7,000 languages and could speak the language of angels and you did that without love, you're nothing. A gong, a clanging cymbal. Can you imagine in those songs if our drummer decided to start playing the cymbals as loud as he could play them, how disruptive that would be? He'd look around and say, Tony, what are you doing? And then it has another list. You know, if, if you had all knowledge, you, you could ask me anything. I'd say, well, this is the answer. Or if I had the gift of prophecy, I could read God's mind and I could say, this is going to happen. Or if I had faith that I could look out and say, monument, be gone. Or if I had the will to die. If I had any of those gifts and I exercised them without love, there's no benefit to me. God isn't fooled. God looks at the heart, not the externals. And I can read those lists, and, and in some way I go, there's a loophole. Those really don't apply to me. There's no way I'm going to know 7,000 languages. I don't have that degree of faith. It doesn't matter. But there's one in that list that hits home. It says, if you gave everything that you had, I go to the bank, take everything out, sell my house and my cars, all I've got the shirt on my back, I take that bag down to potter's wheel and I say, feed the poor. If I do that without love, it doesn't impress God. 
Love is the motivation. We love because God first loved us. And you go, well, I can't do that. And then the next question is, well, then why do I do the things that I do if it's not out of love? And so I think we need to begin to self-inspect a bit. Why does the praise team praise? Why does the greeter greet? Why do you teach in Sunday school or have a Bible study or have a quiet time? What's your motivation? The challenge is it needs to be love. Then he gives us 15, they're actually verbs, Greek verbs, of what love looks like. It says love is patient and kind and not jealous. Patient is long-suffering. I think of a mom or a dad or a grandma that's praying diligently for that lost son or daughter or military person in conflict. Love is long-suffering. And it's kind. My wife, a couple of weeks ago, we had a cooker that with a propane tank and had the hose come out. And we'd lost a little plastic end to the hose. So she, we were out of state. She went into a store, said, we're looking for one of these. And the storekeeper said, well, I think I've got one. He went in the back. He came out. He said, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have one. And then he goes, well, here. And he took one off of a floor bottle that's brand new and said, here, I'll just give this to you. Go, what? That doesn't happen. That's kindness. It says it's not jealous. I think we're all vulnerable in this area. You look across the street and go, geez, I think they just got a new car. Boy, I, I wish I was as tall as he was or as smart as she was, or, and we begin to do this comparison game. And then pretty soon that smurfs over into jealousy. And we look at this list and we find somebody kind of below us and then it kind of puffs us up. Well, at least I'm better off than those people. But we always come back to these people. Wish my bank account looked like theirs, then I could be a really good Christian. Love is not jealous. If we find ourselves in that arena, it's not God's love. Then it has a number of things that love is not. It says it doesn't brag. You know, by the way, let me tell you what I did last week. My dad used to say, you know, you don't have to tell people how good you are. They'll find out. Love is not arrogant. It doesn't look down on people. I can't turn the TV on and watch without feeling almost inferior to the people that are talking. Jesus said, I come to serve, not to be served. And so love is underneath serving. It's not on top, looking down. It says love doesn't envy I spent the last few years of my athletic career on the bench. 
And I'll have to admit, there were a lot of games I'd look out there and go, geez, I wish he'd pick up his fourth foul. I might be able to get in. Wish he'd get a headache, migraine or something. Put me in, coach, I'm ready. I was envious. How many second teamers try to help the guy on the first team to be better? That's love. It says love is not provoked. I am convinced that they wrote 1 Corinthians before they built I-25 down through Denver. The Greek for provoked is voice goes out. And you're driving along and, and you go, and did you see that? And then you cut somebody off and say, oh, sorry. It's maddening. Love isn't provoked. Doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Wife says to the husband, supper at six. Says, yeah, okay, no problem. Six comes, six goes, six thirty, seven, seven fifteen, comes in. Why didn't you call? Well, you remember the time you didn't call me? And I was stuck at the bus depot. I mean, we harbor these things we can pull out as arrows. Love isn't like that. It says love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. God is love. God is truth. It's holy. And then he finishes, love is, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When you look at the Greek, that word endures, the Greek word is hupomaleo. I had a patient who would come in and say, how's my trabeculectomy doing? She says, it's just a fun word to say, trabeculectomy. Well, hupomaleo is one of those words. It just brings a smile to your face, but if you learn what it means, it means that you're carrying a burden. It's like a donkey or a mule with a pack on its back. And it's just going along. This is what love does. It bears our burdens. That word bears all things is like a covering. Love covers a multitude of sins, it says. And then it says, love never fails. And then he circles back those last verses in 1 Corinthians with spiritual gifts again. And he says, you know, you've elevated tongues and when Christ comes again, tongues won't even be here. They'll cease. And there's prophecy in all knowledge and they'll fade away. If you go out tonight and look into the stars or see in the heavens, you'll see all the stars. But if you go out tomorrow morning and look, they're gone. The greater light of the sun, S-U-N, blocks it out. Well, when Christ comes again, the greater light of the S-O-N will blot out these gifts. You won't even see them. It says faith, hope, and love. Faith you don't need anymore, and hope you don't need anymore, because Christ is going to be right there, and I can see him. I don't need to have faith that he exists, and I don't have to have hope that 
He's coming again. But love persists. And you say, I can't love like that. And I know that. I can't either. And God knows that. And he said, so let me love through you. Let the Holy Spirit begin to take more and more control over that mindset. So we've talked about the preeminence of love and what it looks like, but Jesus dealt specifically with that. If you want to know what love looks like, you go to Luke 10. And there, a lawyer stands up to ask Jesus a question. Now, a lawyer in the time of Christ was a Pharisee who was in charge of knowing the law. His job was to be able to explain the law to the other Jews. He was a scholar. Not like a lawyer today where we go for legal advice or contracts, etc. So this lawyer stands up and says to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? First of all, it's a redundant question because you don't have to do anything to inherit. All you have to do is outlive the person. But he says, what do I have to do? And Jesus looks and says, well, what do the scriptures say? And every good Jewish boy and girl would memorize these scriptures. And he says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, go and do that and you'll live. And if the lawyer, you can just hear the wheels turning, and he's thinking, I can't do that. Is there a loophole somewhere? So he says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, when he starts out once upon a time, you're in trouble. He says, once upon a time, there was a man who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. 17 mile curvy, craggly, very dangerous road, even today. And he fell amongst robbers. They beat him, they stripped him, they left him alongside the road to die. And then he said, a priest comes by. Now, a priest is a Levite who's in charge of the ceremonial sacrifices that are made in the temple. Theoretically, He's as close to God as anybody on earth. I mean, he's right up there next to the Holy of Holies. And the priest comes by, sees the man, passes on the other side. Now, we don't know why that happened. There's a lot of conjecture. You can read a lot of commentaries, and it says, this is why, but we don't know. We just know that he passed by. And then a Levite comes. Now, a Levite is from the tribe of Levi, and they're in charge to help the priests. So these are two men of God. Again, we don't know why, but the Levite passed by. And then he said, a Samaritan. And I'm sure at that point, 
the lawyer's head just about blew up. Because to a Jew, you can't get any lower than a Samaritan. We turn the clock back 800 years earlier, the Assyrians came in and destroyed the Israelites, those northern ten tribes. But they left a remnant, and that remnant, instead of marrying Jews, married some Assyrians, and they developed this line, half-breeds. And then those Samaritans decided they'd only believe the first five books of the Old Testament, and they don't worship in Jerusalem. They worship at Mount Gerizim. And so a Jew was about, or excuse me, a Samaritan was about the lowest of low, and Jesus is a Samaritan, comes by. Sees the man, feels compassion, comes over, anoints his wounds with oil and wine. That's food, right out of his backpack. Bandages him up probably had to tear some strips of his robe off to do the bandaging, puts him on his mule, takes him to the inn, tells the innkeeper, I'll take care of it. Then he whips out his wallet, hands the innkeeper his visa card, and he said, whatever he spends, I'll cover it, I'll be back. And Jesus looked at the lawyer and said, who was the neighbor? Well, you can't even say the word Samaritan. He says, no, the guy that showed mercy. He said, go and do the same. The good Samaritan is what love looks like. Love's not even mentioned in the passage. But if you want to see flesh and bones what love looked like. It's the Good Samaritan. He felt compassion. He saw a need. He reacted. It cost him some food. It cost him some of his clothes. It cost him time. That's a big deal. It cost him his schedule. He had to circle back through. Cost him some money. Love is messy. God says, I know you can't do it. You love because I love you. John Wooden, in his last few days of life, was in the hospital. Hadn't eaten much, wasn't talking much. But he'd selected some scripture for his memorial service. And it happened to be, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, Mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And Dudley Rutherford was going to do the service, and Mr. Rutherford came by to visit. Said, Coach Wooden, uh, you've selected some scripture our time back. Do you still want to use that in your service? And he said, kind of nodded. And he said, Love the Lord, love your neighbor. Have you been able to do that in your life. And he said, I'm working on it. When you take your last breath, when I take mine, 
those that have been left probably won't remember the time you spent at the office late at night or the fact that the house was always tidy. But what they'll remember is your love and how it made them feel. It says, and now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What's love got to do with it? 